for those who may be our guests today, we're <coughs> been preaching for a number of weeks now in the letter of James. If you have your Bible, turn with me to James chapter 4 today, or the particular text we're going to talk about is on page 9 in your bulletin. Short text, but lots going on here. We're now toward the end of James's letter, and he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, and spend a year there, and trade, and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. And we pray now, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to work among us in a very powerful way in this time of hearing and receiving and then applying this text. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So I'd like you to imagine that you're sitting here in the pew and the only reason you're here this afternoon is curiosity. You're absolutely not here for the experience. <laughs> you're already kind of vaguely insulted that everyone's facing the front and the music sounds old, and the guy up front talks way too much, and the people are very friendly, but you kind of wonder what they want. You are not here for an experience. You are not here because you have a sense of need. You are definitely not looking for a crutch this afternoon in your life. You're a little bit curious, though, because you've heard of Christianity, and you may have met some Christians, and what you would like to kind of find out, maybe, and hopefully without too much skin left in the game, is behind all the trappings you know, behind all of the institutional stuff that inevitably becomes a part of every church, you are trying to figure out what is the core of this religion. Like, what is the, the thing that makes this thing a thing? Right? To put it very articulately. And then you hear the, the guy up front, and he reads James chapter 1, verse 27, the first part of it, and it says this, and it kind of gets you excited because that verse says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, colon. And you're kind of like, well, here's my answer. This guy's going to tell me what their religious book says, that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, and you're waiting to hear. And you don't realize you've already heard it. Christianity is life before God is your Father. That really is Christianity. There are specifics, but that's really it. It is life before God as your Father. The maker of heaven and earth is your Father through Jesus Christ, and you and I live before his face. That is, that's the heart of this thing. Well, I thought, I thought Christianity was about Jesus, Pastor. Well, that's true, but you know, what, what, did, what did Jesus come for? What was his mission? It was to restore life before God as our Father. That was the whole point. I hate my Father. You couldn't turn me off to Christianity any more than telling me that God is anything like my Father. You know, maybe you hate your Father. And it would probably be heartbreaking to hear why. But can I say something gently to you? Whether your earthly father was a hero or a hellion, 
Notice something about your father, your earthly father. Whether your response to your earthly father is love or hate or complete indifference, the fact that your earthly father fathered you, that's just a fact. You didn't choose that, and you can't undo that. And what Christians have come to recognize is a far more basic and far more wonderful fact, and that is that we are all fathered by God. Whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, we are all fathered by God. You exist, I exist, you continue to exist right now. I'm, I'm continuing to exist right now because God wills it. Just as there is no book without an author, if there's no God, there's no you. That's just a fact. Accept it or reject it, that is actually the case. And with that authoring of your existence comes authority, but something, something else, and here the best human parents are just very a poor analogy. With the fatherhood of God, the authoring of our existence from God, certainly authority comes with that, but also what comes with God's fatherhood is comprehensive provision. There's no earthly parent of whom this is true. Comprehensive provision. Every single thing we need for life and life more abundantly, our Father provides that, including, and this is really at the core of the Jesus thing, including restoration of life to us rebels who have been choosing death from birth. You know, that's the astonishing thing about God the Father, to lifelong rebels, to hardened traitors against his kingdom and his authority. He extends through Jesus, through Jesus' death and resurrection, he extends grace and forgiveness, total forgiveness and reconciliation and, wonderfully, adoption into his family. And so this whole letter that we're reading, this whole letter is about life before God as our Father. It's about life under the authoritative word of our Father, because our Father speaks authoritatively, but his word is life-giving. His word actually brings us into existence in our very being, but also it brings us back into spiritual existence where we actually, you know, find ourselves like alive to God again. The Word of God, the Word of our Father does all of that, and, and we've talked in, throughout the letter about how, you know, living before God as our Father, you know, how that changes our suffering, how it changes our socializing, and you know, it's no surprise that this letter and Christianity in general, in light of all of that, it's no surprise that James and Christian teaching in general is really, really hard on pride. So as glorious good news as it is that God can be our father through Jesus with all that that brings with it. The flip side of that is this letter is hard on pride. Pride's a killer. Pride doesn't just pit you against your father's authority. Crazily enough, pride will pit you against your father's provision. <laughs> you don't want your father's provision when you're determined to go your own way and you're just positive you can figure it out better than he can, when that's your attitude, you don't want to be provided for by your father. You don't want his blessings. In fact, if you really take this all the way to the wall, you could end up killing your Messiah, killing the very one God has sent to give you life. And so you have this powerful reminder from the Old Testament in James, early, but a little bit earlier in this chapter, where James reminds his readers that the Bible says God resists the proud. God opposes, this is not good news when God opposes you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And now late in his letter, James, having opened up the fatherhood of God, having really gone after pride and 
our desire to rule our own lives, he gets uncomfortably personal here at the end of his letter, and he basically says this. He says, speaking of pride, which he has been speaking of pride, he says, I want to talk about your plans this week, and I want to talk about your money next time. Speaking of pride, I want to get into your business, and he is going to get into our business really badly today. I want to talk about pride in your plans, and I want to talk about pride in your money. And what I want to do today, I just want to start by talking a little bit about planning, and I want to start with the idea of kind of what I'm going to call natural planning, because if you think about human beings that God made, planning is very natural. You know, we just read this, come, you who say, today, tomorrow, we're going to go into a town, be there a year, trade, make a profit, blah, 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 and James really goes after this. Now, on one hand, you kind of step back and you think about planning, and you realize planning is perfectly natural for us human beings. You all are doing it. I'm sure you have plans for this afternoon. I'm sure you have plans for the next, you know, few weeks, months, years of your life. And if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, this makes sense because God made human beings and he gave them what over the earth? Somebody, surely in 10 years you've picked this up. Dominion, right. And don't think about those weird dominionists you read about in the news. Think about dominion just as very simply, God made human beings because he is Lord. His children are going to be rulers in his kingdom. They're going to be lords with a little L. That's what it means to be made in God's image. We're going to exercise his rule over the earth. And what did that mean? Well, obviously, if you're going to rule in the earth, you're going to take dominion over the world, then that means you're going to go and you're going to invest in particular places, a garden, say. You're going to invest in those places for seasons of time in order to make them fruitful. Like, that's just dominion taking. You go someplace for some time, and you invest there, and you make that place fruitful, whatever it might be. And that's, you know, that's reflected in what's happening here, where there's a plan We're going to go to a place, a town. We're going to be there for some time, a year, let's say, that should do it. And we're going to invest there, trading with an expectation of fruitfulness. We're going to make a profit. And this is perfectly natural planning for for dominion takers. So what's the problem? Why is James, I mean, he really goes after this. (laughs) Well, you can make a case, I think, that the entire Bible is about our stubborn human refusal to see the difference between being a king and being the high king. Like, that kind of is the Bible. We just refuse to see the difference and, 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 and acknowledge the difference between being a king, which we are, and being the high king, which we most definitely are not. When you and I go out into the world to exercise dominion, and we plan to do that, and we go, out, you know, we go with our plans— we, we, we so easily forget the fact that there is a high king, the high king, there's only one, God the high king, you know, he's also working in this world. He's also busy doing things in this world that you're walking into. And not only are his works that he is doing entirely outside your control or my control, like God was never going to ask your permission to do something. God is never going to allow anything that you think or do to constrain him in any way. He's just going to do what he's going to do. So he, his works are not within our control, but he's, he's also structured reality, structured the world in such a way that the world is not completely subject to our control either. There are things you can change, there are things you can manipulate, there are things that you can move, but the world is not completely subject to human control. There are times when you push the world far enough, the world will start pushing back simple, obvious illustrations like the law of gravity and so on. So God's working in the world, and he's not under our control, and the world's not completely under our control as much as we're trying. Now, I even heard somebody recently says they think they're going to somehow try to adjust the distance of the earth from the sun. It seems like a terrible idea to me, but, you know, what do I know? 
Because God's intent for his image bearers, beloved, please, this next sentence really matters in this sermon, so please hear this. God's intent for his image bearers, his lords with a little L, is that our agency in the world, which is kind of assertive, like God wants you to not sit on your, you know, sit on your couch and just kind of wait for life to happen. He wants you to be an agent, to be a, a subject, to be to assert yourself in the world, but God's plan is that that assertive agency in the world would at the same time, at every single point, also be humbly, gratefully receptive. Not just assertive, but receptive, that we would not simply act upon the world as if it is ours to control, but even as we are acting upon the world, we would also be responsive to the world as it comes to us from the hand of God. I think this might even be part of why when God told the Old Testament Israel they were allowed to kill animals, he said, you may not rush upon the animal and eat it with its blood. And I've puzzled over why that might be, but part of it is because there's an enormous difference between a humane killing of an animal that God has gifted to you for food, acknowledging the life and the value of the life of this animal as reflected in its lifeblood, draining it out properly and respectfully, and then eating in a, in a controlled way versus pouncing upon an animal and devouring it like you're just a predator and, and some kind of like, you know, beast with no regard for the order of things. Very interesting to reflect on this. The Bible's full of this. The world is coming to you from the hand of God. Your circumstances are coming to you from the hand of God, and there's an assertiveness, yes, but also a receptivity at every point. Hartmut Rosa, a German philosopher who's written a little book you really ought to read called The Uncontrollability of the World. His way of expressing this is that the world for us as humans, he's not even a Christian, but the world for us as humans, it's not a point of aggression. It's not a point of aggression. It's a place of resonance. Where so often what God wants you to do as you're in his world is to resonate with what he has put there how he is working there. And God's plan for his human image bearers as he made them in the Garden of Eden was that they would take that consciously into account all the time. That we are, this is, you know, we're to eat and we're to take dominion, but God is working here and we have to be receptive to what he's doing and receptive to the the world as he presents it to us. That's natural planning. But we've already come to sinful planning. Because that isn't how it is. Now, what James goes after here is the shift in our thinking about the world that happened when we sinned. James, in verse 14 here, he goes after the pride that so easily sees the world just lying before us as kind of raw materials for our purposes with no, maybe theoretically you've got it in your head, but it's not actually affecting your planning with no real regard for the high king. And I'd like you to notice that he addresses his very intense, come now, it's kind of a hello McFly sort of moment, you know. He addresses that, come now, pay attention here, to Christians. He's not talking to pagans. He's talking to Christians. Come now, you who say, we're off on a mission to do this and that and get a prophet. And he, he, he challenges the sin. He calls it evil by the end, the sin in this way of planning. Because he challenges us very starkly in verse 14 with, with two things. Number one, he challenges us with our finitude, our finitude, our limitedness, which we are far too inclined to forget. You don't know. You're, you're actually ignorant. I'm actually ignorant. Now, I, beloved, I just want to let that ignorance 
the limits of our knowledge really just kind of sink in for a second because I, I, it, this text kind of surprised me as I was thinking about it. Do you realize, I had to sort of like work this into my brain. Do you realize that every single thing in your future is a figment of your imagination? Do you realize that? Everything in your future is a figment of your imagination. I'm going to make it home this afternoon. You don't know that. I'm planning this for dinner. You don't know if you're going to get to that meal. I'll be healthy in six weeks. You don't know that. I'm going to go to college this year, and I'm going to study this, and I'm going to get this job when I'm done. You don't know that. My kids are going to outlive me. You don't know that. The economy is going to be stable for a while. You don't know that. I'm going to live most of my life in a neighborhood where I don't have marauding bands of thugs walking around just shooting people randomly. You don't know that. You don't know if there's going to be money in your bank account tomorrow. You don't know if that paycheck's going to show up. You don't know if you ever pay off your mortgage. You don't even know. You don't even know literally what's going to happen in the next four or five minutes of your life. You have absolutely no way of knowing that. You have good reason to give some educated guesses, but you are imagining everything about your future. You don't know, James says. You don't know. And you're frail. Because I feel kind of solid, you know? I mean, Ben feels solid to Ben because Ben kind of lives inside of Ben and, you know, I can feel myself and I feel pretty substantial and I, it's just kind of tough to, to, to wrap my soul around this idea. James says, besides the fact you have no idea, you literally don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, you're a mist. You feel so solid. Your life feels like it's a thing that kind of has substance to it. You're a mist. We're driving upstate last week, and it was a foggy, foggy morning, and I remember, you know, this moment where it literally looked like clouds had descended on the road, and then seconds later, it just, it's just, I, it, it vanishes so quickly you don't even notice it's gone. That's mist. You're mist. I'm mist. Your memory is mist. You know, my grandfather was one of the most influential people in my entire life. He was a massive presence in my life growing up. He died in 2008. To my children, he's an occasional photograph. To their children, he will literally be nothing more than a cipher in a genealogy. You are about 60 years away from not even being a memory. That's you. And everything you've done will vanish. You're missed. Wow, that's just really uplifting, James. Thank you for that. You know, if James's readers needed to hear this, I wonder if we realize the scale at which modern life tempts us to delusion about all of this. The scale, I mean, it's just, it's staggering. Hartman Rosa, he points out something about the modern, you know, our times. And he he says, we, we are living, culturally speaking, in an unprecedented drive to make the world knowable, accessible, manageable, and useful. Now think about those four things. There is an unprecedented drive in the modern world, 2021, to make our world knowable, accessible, manageable, and useful. We want, 
We, we modern people do not like mysteries. See, ancient people assumed mystery. They assumed there were dark things kind of moving in the shadows of the world. They didn't understand and could not control. We don't like things in the dark. I think the obsession, the modern obsession with lights, we want lights on 24 hours a day because we don't want things in the dark. We want everything to be sort of transparent to us so we can see and understand and know and we have certainty about things. But we don't just want the world to be knowable. We want it to be accessible. There's this idea that access is always a good thing. You know, information access, social access, opportunity access, educational access, vocational access, you know, access to resources. Of course you want the world, as much of the world within reach as possible, but it's important that it be manageable. I mean, you want your health to be manageable, you want your relational life to be manageable, you want your mental health to be manageable, you know, we want everything in the world to be somehow manageable. Why? Because we want the world to be useful to us. We want the world to serve our purposes, and that's just, I mean, we can't even imagine, it's the water we are soaking in, you can't even imagine what it was like to, li- to live in a world where you actually expected the weather to disrupt your week. You expected the weather to change your day. Now you just get in your car or go inside, into your air conditioning or your heated house, or, you know, you, and you pop on your tunes in the car, and you just creep on cruising, storm, what storm? That's, I mean, that's our world. We have no idea what it's like to live in a world that's out of control and not accessible and even unknowable. And, you know, for all the benefits that's brought, because, you know, I think people, my kids, you know, dad hates the Internet and all that. I don't hate the Internet. I I love the modern world. I'm glad I live now and not in 1632. But I don't think we feel the force with which those cultural currents around us are propelling our personal, our personal plans and priorities. You and I say every day of our lives, we will do this. I'm going to do this. And, and, and it's propelled by this idea the world's before us, and we can do with it kind of what we want. We, we lose, we really do not act like we're missed. I don't know who said this. I wish I knew who said this, but it's, it's, it sticks in my mind. I heard this recently. Someone said, you know what's distinctive about 2021, this you know, 21st century world we live in? Everybody now lives like they are going to be 23 forever. Everybody lives now like they're going to be 23 forever. We live as if somehow, possibly, our beauty's not going to fade. Our energy and vigor and health are never going to decline. Opportunities and horizons are not going to vanish before us. We're just going to live like we're 23 until we're, you know, I don't know, I guess until we're dead. Whenever, and it's, it's just a, and that's out there in the fog. And we drive our, short, our children towards this nonsense, and we spend our middle years Instagramming whatever it is we feel like we've achieved of this nonsense. And we spend our later years trying to reinvent our youthful success or maybe our youthful irresponsibility or we live vicariously to the grandkids because life's all about being 23. And to that futility, the scriptures bear witness, all flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. That's reality. And if you want to eternally youthen, I want to eternally youthen. You know how you eternally youthen? The scripture says there's exactly one way that you eternally youthen. You youthen by rooting yourself in what God has said about himself, his kingdom, and your place in his kingdom. You're rooted in the word of the Lord, you will flourish Otherwise, your grass, all that is in the world, John tells us, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it is passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's how you youthen. 
because you're missed. I'm missed. I'm going to live exactly as long as God has determined. That might not be through the remainder of this afternoon. I'm going to prosper to the exact degree that God gives me prosperity. I am finite. I am frail. The difference is I'm his. And my charge to you, beloved, from this text is embrace your finitude. Embrace the fact that you are a limited little thing who doesn't know very much. Embrace your frailty. Embrace your death. Man, thanks for that, Pastor. Why would I say that? Because I want you all, and I want to be this person too, I want us to practice, in Wendell Berry's inimitable phrase, I want us to practice resurrection. I want us to practice resurrection. And that brings me from sinful planning. Finally, last thing I want to talk about is Christian planning. Embrace your finitude, your limits. Embrace your frailty. You are a mist. Because we want to practice resurrection. Christian planning begins with the reality of death. It begins with that reality of death. And when you know that death is coming for you, and that is just right up front in your planning, I'm a mist, I am here today, gone tomorrow, what that frees you to do is to start planning, not as if you're never going to die. You know, there are people that are planning like they're going to live in, they're literally going to be 23 forever, which is not true. But I don't have to plan like that. I don't have to plan like I'm going to never die, like my life in this world is never going to end, nor do I need to live as if the only important stuff is what happens before I'm dead. So I've got to like get all I can out of life before I'm dead. When I know I'm going to die, and I know the God who resurrects the dead, I plan my days and my life as one who is preparing to be resurrected. Do you know what a difference that makes? I'm not living as if death is not coming, because it is. I'm not living as if all that matters is on this side of death, because that's not true. I am living and planning in this world as one who is preparing to die and be resurrected. I am practicing resurrection. And that is so freeing. There is a freedom and vibrancy in knowing that God gave me my life and he has ordained this. You can fight it, but there's no getting around it. He has ordained that in losing that life back to him, in surrendering that life he gave me to him, I'm going to put it on his altar and it will be consumed. I'm going to put it in the ground. It will die. I'm going to surrender it in, back to him. Jesus promises that when I am dying and giving my life back to God in death, that God is going to raise it again, and I'm going to find life that is, as Paul puts it, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But you have to lose your life to gain it. You have to die to live. You have to give back to God what he has given you, or you will not find your life. He who seeks his life in this world will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake, Jesus said, will find it. That's practicing resurrection. Preparing for resurrection means two things, and I'm close to done. Number one, it means humility. Because what is the language that James gives us? This is the language that should be in our life if we are preparing for resurrection, if the Lord wills. See, that's someone who's preparing for resurrection. That's someone who understands, I'm going to die, and I must, I must lose my life to God. If the Lord wills, that's Humility. It means that my life is consciously framed by what's true of everybody, even if they won't acknowledge it. And that reality that frames my life is that my whole life is God's gift, and it is totally subject to his will. I mean, I, beloved, that's not comfortable. 
I do not like this very often, but my life, God gave it to me, and it is comprehensively his to do with as he pleases. I cannot prolong my life one single second beyond what God has ordained for me. I cannot add one cubit to my stature by, you know, all the anxiety and planning in the world. My life is God's to dispose of whether I acknowledge that or not. And humility says, if God wills, Ben Miller will have another day and accomplish this or that. Now, people often ask, you know, Pastor, do you really have to say before every single thing that the Lord wills? And you, you've probably met people who are kind of annoying. Lord willing, I mean, it's part of every single sentence. Lord willing, okay, we get it. Well, I don't know. I'll be very honest with you. I, as I get older in the ministry, I'm very, very interested in one thing before I die, and that is seeing Christians actually change. I'm interested in seeing Christians formed. I am tired of Christians talking the talk. I want to live the life. I want you to live the life, and you have to, over time, build habits or you don't change. So my thing is this. I don't think you have to say every time you say, I'm going to go do something, if the Lord wills, but I'll say this. It's a great little habit. It's a useful little habit. It's a way of slowly changing the way you think because James says here that any planning that does not consciously take into account the fact that it's only going to happen if God wills it, and can I say something else to us successful Long Islanders? The more competent you are and the more successful you are, the more tempting it is to ignore that or forget that. But any planning that does not consciously take into account, this will happen if God wills it, is a form of boasting. You ought to say if the Lord wills as it is, you boast in your arrogance. See, not all boasting is loud. All boasting is evil, James says. All boasting is evil evil. And he really gets after us as Christians in verse 17, because he says, now to those of you who know the right thing to do and you don't do it, to you it's really sin. You're Christians. You know God. For you to think, for one's, no, it's, we don't think. We just forget. For you to put out of your mind that you will do exactly what God wills that you will do. Your life will be what he has willed it to be. To let that go, to let that slip, it is sin. It is a sin. Not to acknowledge the lordship of God not to be humble before him. And this is as best a place as any for me to just quickly say, there's only one man who never sinned in this, who never boasted like this. There's only one man in whose planning and action there was perfect obedience at every point to the Father without exception, even unto death, and that was Jesus. And there's your righteousness, beloved. You and I sin in this every day, every hour, but it is by Jesus' obedience and Jesus' righteousness, which is perfect in your place, that is what assures your resurrection, not your getting this all, getting all your ducks in a row with this. Our hearts wander, our hearts rebel. Jesus is our righteousness. He has secured our resurrection, but he has also given us his Holy Spirit, his resurrection power, that spirit that raised him from the dead. And as that spirit is at work in us, we can follow his example and learn to think about our lives every day in these terms. If the Lord wills, I'll live and do this or that. The second thing, though, that this produces, preparing for resurrection, not just humility, but lastly and secondly, it produces activity. Not just humility if the Lord wills, but activity, because as the Lord wills, we will live, <laughs> and we will do this or that. You cannot look at God's plans for Adam. Now, Adam made a wreck of it, but then they were fulfilled in Jesus. Think about Jesus. You cannot look at Jesus doing the will of the Father and not realize that humility is a very busy, productive thing. Humility gets an awful lot done. The more our lives are surrendered to God, lost to him in the hope of resurrection, 
the more fruitful and productive they will become. You will find yourself trusting and and waiting upon the will of God. You will find yourself casting all kinds of bread on the waters, throwing bread liberally on the waters, throwing your seed promiscuously in the fields of the world. Because you're going to know that even in death, God's life is working. Even when you throw something and it looks like it just died, that epic fail, God's life is working even in death. What dies bears fruit, and you'll just keep working. The results are not going to matter that much to you because you're, pl- you're, you're, you're practicing resurrection. And, and Wendell Berry has this gross but powerful sentence in one of his Sabbath poems where he says about this. You know, you go out and stuff dies and, and things fail and, and they're, they're, they're just sometimes so full of just ugly, you know, they're just not what you'd hoped. They look like they're not going to live maybe ever. And Wendell Berry says... Listen to carrion. Listen to carrion. You know what carrion is? Go find that dead animal. Put your ear close and listen to carrion. Put your ear close, he says, and hear the faint chatterings of the songs that are to come. Because that rotting animal, like the rotting leaves, and all the other dying things of God's world, it is rotting in order that other things may grow and live. Listen to carrion. If a seed goes into the ground and dies, Jesus said, it will bear much fruit. And there will always be in this activity, there will always be the, the tension. Man, I feel this. The tension between our plans and the bittersweet fact that God often has very different plans. My challenge, and I'm sure yours too, has been to resist the urge to hedge my bets because after you throw enough seed and it doesn't grow, you do this and it fails. You do this and it's a disappointment. You think this person's going to be something and they're not. You think this project's going to work out and it doesn't. And after that happens long enough, you start to hedge your bets. Why even invest? Why throw more seed? Why put more bread on the waters? Things are dying. They are dying because we're practicing resurrection. And while moderns view that uncontrollability of the world as a frustration... To the Christian, that's just essential to wonder. It's essential to the excitement of a living relationship with a reality and ultimately with a God I cannot manipulate to my own ends as a projection of my own will. But you know, if you need some encouragement in this practically, think about James's readers as we close. James's readers, this tiny, little, weak, scattered, frail church bunch of Jesus followers who I mean who even knows who Jesus is in those years it's a tiny little movement they're getting killed they're outcast they're marginalized they got no cultural or social power whatsoever they are a mustard seed and they're surrounded by oak trees of Rome and second temple Judaism and they're just dwarfed they outlived them all they outlived them all And so Christ's church will outlast all of the boasting chaff in glory that I has not seen. So my encouragement to you, beloved, today, humbly, actively, hopefully, practice resurrection. Amen. And lead us to do what our great resurrecting God, in Jesus we pray. Amen.